let's pray and ask for God's help in this season of prayer and ask the Spirit to come and illuminate our minds and hearts with his word so that we would understand his holy will for us. Oh, Lord God, how thankful we are that you are a powerful father, a dear father, that you have designed a means for us to communicate with you. It's by faith right now. We wish so much that we could see you in your glory. We couldn't stand it in this current state. It would devastate us. And yet it is the longing of our hearts to be in your presence, to be free from the sin that just clings to us, that sometimes feels like will never go away, and to see Jesus. Oh, how much we long to see our Savior. We, like Thomas, desire to place our fingers into those scars that are so precious. Not that we might believe, but because we believe. The one who died for us took our place. What a mighty Savior he is. What a dear friend and brother he is. Thank you. And Spirit of God, we invoke your presence today. Please, would you come now? Holy Spirit, come. We need you to come to us personally. We need you to come to us as a church family. We need you to quiet the anxious thoughts that race through our hearts and minds right now. And there are some great responsibilities in front of us, questions that have not yet been answered and, and needs that are so great that we feel discouraged even as we look at them. But you are the one that Jesus said would come as the comforter. You are the one that Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away so that the Spirit will come. Oh, please come into this assembly and accomplish the work that we are in desperate need of. We ask specifically that you would convict our hearts of sin so that we can turn away from it quickly, that you would apply the powerful blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as our cleansing, as our life, as protection from the evil one, that you would strengthen us on his body and blood as we look to him and and we just sang that beautiful, uh, that, that beautiful prayer and do, Lord, desire to turn our eyes to you, but we need help in it. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you that you are our God and ask that you would come to us in great blessing and bless this season of prayer our imperfect prayers, the requests that we will make, the times that we have set aside to seek you. Just bless it all for your name's sake. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you read the Gospels and you study both the patterns and practices of Christ's life, you begin to notice that woven into the public ministry of his preaching and healing and the personal conversations with friends and the discipleship of the 12, there is an essential strand that runs through all of it and in a sense would even bind all other aspects of his earthly life and ministry together. It's part of his baptism story as Luke records it. It seems to be his habit after busy stretches of healing and preaching. It is essential to his choice of the 12 disciples, and it flows from his lips in gratitude and blessing at the feeding of the 5,000. 
It's preparatory for an important discussion with the disciples in Luke 9, verse 18, and the prelude to his transfiguration just a few verses below that. It is the context of his kind words that Matt preached through several weeks ago that Matthew recorded where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's essential to his miraculous resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, and it is his means of spreading protection over Peter when the devil himself has asked for permission to sift him like wheat, as Jesus describes. And in the garden, it is the very means with which Jesus strengthens himself, stealing his heart and soul for that great hour of suffering under the wrath of Almighty God that is upon him. And even in the hours of his agony on the cross, he is persevering in it. And so compelling was his example that the disciples reached a point in their own daily walk and interaction with him where they cry out to him, if you will, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, you know this with the season of prayer, we're going to take a look at some things regarding prayer. But the priority of prayer is not only reflected in the life of Christ, the disciples got hold of this. And even after his ascension, you see them, as you read through the book of Acts, devoting themselves. And it's not just the apostles who devote themselves to prayer. It's the church. And remember, in chapter 1, it's just 120 of them, and they're gathered in, in this little room, tucked away, if you will, but they're praying, and they're praying in light of the promise that Jesus had given them that at his departure, he would send the Holy Spirit, and then Acts 2 kind of erupts for us, doesn't it? And the culmination of many of those prayers is experienced in the outpouring of the Spirit in what we know as Pentecost. You have to connect the dots between the prayer in private, even of 120 people, and the Pentecost, and the thousands who were converted there. And the testimony of Luke, as he writes the Acts of the Apostles, will include for a number of chapters that the people of Christ, his true disciples and followers, are devoting themselves to prayer. I wonder how many of us have such a habit and practice of prayer that it would be recorded of us if, if our life story were set down as the, at least some of the highlights of those early disciples and believers is set down in the book of Acts, how many of us would be described as devoted to prayer? Well, wherever you might fall on the spectrum of no prayer to praying without ceasing, like the Lord commanded, there's a really beautiful, simple, powerful word from Jesus reminding us of some really essential parts of where you pray, who you pray to, and what you pray for. And it's found in Matthew 6. So if you would turn there with me, please. And I just want to read a brief portion, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. Jesus says, and when you pray... You must not, like be, must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of our Lord. Notice with me, if you will, please, back in uh, verses 5 and 6, some very basic things about the where of the believer's prayer. And this stands in contrast, doesn't it, when he says, Go pray in private. It stands in contrast to those that he describes as hypocrites who pray just to be seen. So they they find a public place, a public setting, because they want other people to see them praying. And, And the Lord says, that's not what prayer is about. When you pray, go into your room. That is, find a, find a quiet, private place. And the King James Version even translates a particular term in this passage as closet. And that's, that's good. That's a really great translation, actually, because the room that Jesus refers to would be an inner room in a house, in a house that likely has no windows. Uh, so there would be a, a place that would uh, protect someone, so to speak. And then he describes it even uh, with the words secret, So a place that's concealed from others and says shut the door. So it's a place without external distractions or or interruption. This is just a a really simple but practical thing. And then he also says, pray to your father who's in secret. And he's beginning to use a term here that we love. Fathers are family members. He could have just said, pray to God, the Almighty. And that would be accurate because God is Almighty. But Jesus is reminding us all through this passage that there's a family relationship here. And notice that he says, pray to your father who is in secret, that, that is hidden from your physical sight right now. You, you can't touch him, see him, you can't even hear his voice audibly at this particular time, but he's there. And so we develop intimacy as we pray. Now let me just interject a couple of very practical things for you, because if you've not yet cultivated a da- daily prayer habit, I want to offer you just a, a, a few quick suggestions. So practically speaking, find a quiet, private place where you can talk to the Father without interruption or distraction. If there's a particular room in your house where you can go in the morning or in the evening, whenever you choose to have a prayer time and close the door, do it, literally. The, the Lord's not like joking about this. He wants your attention fully. Here's a second one. To that end, turn your phone off. I mean, some of us are so distracted by that thing. We're prisoner to it. It's supposed to be a tool that serves us, right? When we need to communicate or or somebody else important needs to communicate. The problem is we've all developed, you know, these habits of like instant access. And I hope you're not one of those people that text somebody and if they don't respond in 60 seconds, you're texting back, did you get my text? Did you get my email? Hey, I just tried to call you and left a voicemail. I'm wondering if you got that. We, we, we just feel like we have to be connected to the whole world instantaneously, and, and that'll get in the way of trying to connect with God. So, I mean it. Turn your phone off. And you say, well, I, I use my Bible app on my phone, and I, I need that. Well, then turn off the notifications. I mean, be smart about this thing, right? Here, here's a, a third suggestion. Um, 
Pray with your Bible open. That's how God speaks to us first and foremost. And as you read through the word, don't close it up and then move into a time of prayer. Not everything you read will turn into prayer, but some of it should because we need to be responding in faith to God's word as we read it, and that may mean confession of sin, it may mean just a time of of praise to him, like, wow, Lord, look at all that you are. Or it may be a a, a passage that would shape how you would pray for another person, and that's part of what we're gonna do in these next several days. So think uh, think of how the word of God will shape your prayers. And then make some notes. I, I'm not one who has like long lists of prayers, but I, I brought one of the journals uh, that I've had. Uh, it, this, that cover, which is really cool, it says Gospel Hope Church. Daniel Kaminsky uh, gave Matt and me uh, this for Christmas a year ago. I love this thing. And some of you will be jealous and when you see that and want your own. So Daniel may be able to tell you where you could order it. But it's, you can just see, it's just a little notebook with, with a, a line journal inside. And this is one of the tools that I use often when I'm praying, and so it may be that I'm praying for members of Gospel Hope or other things come to my mind that I need to pray for. And I love to keep a a little list running, in part because when God answers those requests, it's great to go back and, and remind yourself of when you prayed for it or how you prayed for it. And sometimes it takes years, but make notes. Now, here's another practical suggestion. I also keep a, a separate pad of paper for what I call the distractors. You know how when you sit down to read your Bible or pray, as I do, you start thinking of all those other tasks, the to-do list that begins to form, right? And someone shared this with me years ago, and it's been exceedingly helpful. I've done this with physical notepads. I also have a little, uh, a little electronic file uh, on my laptop because I often do have my devotions you know, off of my laptop. Um, but I have a little... I have a little notepad either open or physically there so I can jot down a little note, call so-and-so, and then immediately get back to prayer. Because if I don't write it down, then I'm all worried I'm gonna forget because I am prone to that, just like you. So if, if that were a picture of, of my desk or your desk with a Bible and then the little prayer journal and notepad, there should be a third uh, pad there beside it. So something really practical for you. Now, that has to do with the where of prayer. I, one other thing I'll insert very quickly is I think it's really important that you find a quality portion of your day. Don't give God the leftovers. Um, like when you're crawling in bed at night and you're so exhausted, it's a good thing to pray one last time before uh, you, know, you go comatose. But that's probably not going to be a really great time of prayer with the Lord. Find a really good moment in your day. Some of you are morning people, so first thing is when you need to do it. Others of you, I mean, it takes you three hours to wake up. So then maybe do late afternoon, early evening. Uh, But give God a, a good piece of your day for that. Now let's talk more importantly about the who of the believer's prayer, because Jesus spends significant time here. So if you look uh, specifically at the end of verse six, your father, uh, Jesus uses that term, who is in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And he's beginning to tell, tell us that the one we're praying to is first and foremost our father. Now what kind of father is he? Well again, notice in the text, he's first of all a father who sees and rewards. He sees what's going on in your life. 
sees even that feeble effort you and I make where some days we feel like, you know, I tried to pray, but I, I couldn't even keep my own mind and heart in it. I'm not sure that the Lord would be interested in anything I offer to him. Oh, yes, he is. Because as your child, he loves you in the same way that you, as a parent, love when your little child comes and through feeble attempts to communicate just babbles on but there's joy in their heart or there's sorrow there sometimes you understand the word sometimes you don't but you know that because that is your child and you see them in that condition you are eager to respond and Jesus uses the term reward the father who sees you praying in secret will actually do something necessary in fulfillment of an obligation not that you obligate him to yourself but that he by virtue of saying i am your father he has obligated himself to you he's a father who sees and rewards second of all he's a father who hears and responds jesus says when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the gentiles do and gentiles is actually not an ethnic reference at this point it's actually a spiritual reference to those who are non-believers when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. The pagans, if I can put it this way, of the world think that through extensive speaking, babbling, as some commentators even refer to, are going to grab the attention of a God that they might be praying to, and because they've babbled on and on and on and on and on, finally get a hearing. And what Jesus is clearly implying is that your father's not like that. He's not waiting until you hit a certain quantity of words before he tunes in. No, he hears. The Gentiles think they will be heard for their many words, but you're not praying to a Gentile God. You're praying to the God who is your father. Let's go to the third one. He's a father who knows and provides. I love this. Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. How remarkable is that? How comforting and encouraging is it to think in terms of the fact that the God that you are about to pray to, who is your Father, knows what you need before you even discover the need. I was stunned as I looked up this week, just of, out of curiosity, how many orphans are in the world? UNICEF estimates that there are 153 million orphans. Oh, think about what that represents. It doesn't tell what age they are, but in my mind, I see so many of these orphans being in a really insecure position where it's up to them to find a meal, up to them to hustle for the daily necessities. It's up to them to find protection and care. Who do they turn to for wisdom and instruction in basic life skills, to be an orphan in, in a really abandoned, desolate kind of way is a desperate, desperate state. I think many of us, spiritually speaking, live as if we are orphans. One of the evidences is that we're not quick to pray. Our first response is to say, well, I'll figure it out. What do I need to do? Practically speaking, it just here, here was a, a temptation in my own life and uh, in recent weeks. So in the first big snowstorm we had a couple weeks ago, a tree fell on top of my daughter Haley's car. It's drivable. That was the good news, but we had to wait for the insurance settlement, and when it, you know, took it to the body shop and they did the estimate, they totaled it out. There's not one panel on that car that doesn't need repair of some kind, and they said, 
you know, it's just not worth it. We're going to buy it from you. Well, on the one hand, you know, Haley's rejoicing because she's long been ready to give up that car, right? But I'm also looking at it as a dad going, yeah, but, I mean, granted, it, it, it's, it's the college car. You know, it's perfect for my daughter. She's in her senior year. Let's get her through the senior year. She, she just got engaged yesterday, and I'm like, she's going to be somebody else's responsibility soon. <laughs> you know, ugh. And so I go online and start networking a little bit, you know, calling friends. Do you, who do you go to? Who would you recommend? And, you know, as generous as this settlement is for the make and model of the card is, I, I can't buy much at all for that. And I'm reaching a point a couple days ago where I'm like, you know what? I didn't say this to her, but I'm thinking, you may have to carpool with mom or something. You may have to ride a bike when it gets warmer. And then I thought, you know, Danny, you've prayed so little about this, and you're going to preach this week. Maybe you ought to take a look at your own sermon notes. And that turned into a really sweet time of just saying, Father, you know what I need, so I'm just going to release it into your care. I was living like an orphan for at least a few hours early one morning, as if there was no father in my heavenly home who had already anticipated this thing. Probably, when the whole story would be known, did us a favor by smashing that car. It doesn't feel like it at this moment, but that was one of those moments where I I just had to come to grips with the fact that I'm living like an orphan, and I don't need to, because I have a father who knows and provides. This is the God who sees and understands us perfectly. Jesus actually elaborates on this later on in chapter 6 when he comes to verses 25 through 33 in particular, and he he runs to that whole series of like, don't worry, do not worry about what you're going to eat or drink, and I think we can insert what you're going to drive. Why? Because our Father knows. It's why Paul would write in Philippians 4, 19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. You know, God is not stingy. I I mean, it doesn't mean I raise my expectation that a Maserati is going to be delivered to my driveway this week. I mean, you know, should I put God to the test in that way? I don't think so. But beloved, he is saying to us clearly, I'm your father. I love you. I know what you need. Even before you discover the need, I'm ahead of you in this game. Pray. Pray to me. The next thing we see in the text, though, is that he's a father who rules and acts. And as we move into what we know most famously as the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus has prayed in like this, he begins with this invocation, our Father. That's the way we address him. He is God Almighty. He is the Most High. He is the Eternal One who is unapproachable by, by human people. But he's our Father. And notice how the Lord begins this in heaven. That reminds us that he's the sovereign king. You know, when Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord, he prayed in 1 Kings 8, 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? I mean, he's just, he's been led by God to build this fabulous temple, and as they're dedicating it to the Lord, he's struck by the incongruity of this thought that the, that the eternal God, who is a spirit, doesn't dwell in a body like you and I dwell, that that God would actually come into a place. And yet the Lord does manifest himself 
Solomon goes on to say, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And I love this passage from Daniel. And this is actually not Daniel speaking. This is Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, who was just a, a wicked, godless king until the Lord humbled him and he came to his senses. And at the end of a season of life where God had humbled him and brought him to this great reality, King Nebuchadnezzar says, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's the God we pray to. That's our Father. That's the who of our prayer. Now let's look in the last few minutes here at the what of the believer's prayer because the Lord gives us at least five categories I think we should learn to operate in when we pray. It doesn't mean you have to pray in all five of these categories every time you say our Father in heaven. You could, but we, we at least ought to understand certain key categories of prayer. And the first is this. We pray for the honor of God's reputation. Look at your Bible again and notice that first petition. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What are we praying for? Well, let's, let's take the name of God first of all because there are actually many titles and, and a handful of names that he reveals himself to us through And the proper name, particularly in the Bible, has reference to the person in his entire character. So the names of God are not only a means of revelation, but they're also capturing who he is. That's why we don't, that's why we don't use his name carelessly. And you can do that in all kinds of ways. But particularly in our prayer, we are praying that when we say that Lord, we want your name to be hallowed. We're actually saying we want people to know you as you are, to honor you for who you are, not who they imagine you to be, to come into that personal relationship. And if you have time to think through the names of God uh, from the, the simplest expression like the Hebrew name El, which means the mighty one, or El Shaddai, God Almighty, or Elohim, God in the fullness of his power, or Adonai, which refers to him as master or Lord, or his very special name, Yahweh, which reveals him to us as the self-existent, covenant-keeping God, the great I Am. And then to that special name, he attaches all kinds of titles, Lord of hosts, Lord of righteousness, Lord our provider, the Lord our banner, the Lord our healer, the Lord our peace, and the Lord our shepherd. All of those are components of his character and his being. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Lord, we want you to work and move and act in such a way, both through us, through the preaching and proclamation of your word, that the nations of the earth would come to see you as you are and know you and worship you and serve you hallowed be your name but we're also praying personally Lord hallow, hallow your name in my life how often do we seek to establish ourselves as supreme in our little corner of the world and if truth be told practically speaking many of us reverence and hallow ourselves day by day far more than we do God himself I wonder whose name you are really seeking to establish whose reputation are you really concerned with your prayer life will be one of the ways that you can cultivate that humble, passionate heart for God's honor and reputation. 
So we pray for the honor of God's reputation. Then the Lord says, pray this way, your kingdom come. We're, we're praying for the establishment of God's rule. And oh, how we need God's rule. I wish we could put him on the ballot locally and nationally. I don't think Jesus himself would win an election in the current culture. You know, more than that, we have his promises that one day he will rule. I love what Paul says in Ephesians, the day is coming when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will be a great day. But you know what? In the meantime, we can pray to that end and we can submit ourselves personally and live in that way. When we talk about God's kingdom coming, we're speaking of his sovereign rule over all things. There is an aspect of a, I, I'm among those who believes there's a literal thousand year reign coming and you can refer to that in a very specific way as the kingdom of Christ. I think there's an eternal kingdom that will come. Now there's differences of opinion there, but one thing, and I don't think that Jesus is saying pray for that thousand year reign to come. He's not limiting to that. No, I think he's actually, in, in the context of Matthew's gospel, you really see this. No, there's a, there's a kingdom of the heart, first of all, that he's establishing. And the eternal kingdom will ultimately be the result of that work he is doing to rescue sinners from their sin, from themselves, and establish his kingdom dominion within us. There's a kingdom ethic that you see in Matthew's gospel. It's even presented here in the Sermon on the Mount because Matthew 5, 6, and 7 record what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom ethic that Jesus wants to establish by his lordship in our lives is one of love and humility and generosity and kindness of forgiveness and reconciliation. The kingdom priority that he establishes that he even speaks of at the end of chapter six is the righteousness of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All, all the stuff will be added to you. So, so it's not merely a future kingdom that we're praying for. No, we are praying for something transformational right now. As one author writes, Cornelius Plantiga, in his old book now, Engaging God's World, he writes, we're praying for a miracle that people would stop rebelling against God's will and stop ignoring it and would conform their wills to God's. We're praying, pr praying for the establishment of God's rule. Number three, we pray for the supply of God's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Isn't that a sweet expression of ultimate dependence on God? A lot of people in the world who it doesn't even occur to them to pray for the provision of daily bread. They bear the responsibility to themselves. It's part of the reason they're so tense and nervous and uptight. It's part of the reason our culture right now is in the shape it's in because it really doesn't rely on this God who is good and sovereign, who is a father to them. Well, of course they're stressed. Of course they're worried about keeping their job. Of course they're worried about inflation because if they don't worry about it, if they don't overcome it, it'll get them. Our father knows we need daily bread. When our kids were younger, there wasn't one single morning that they woke up and said, is there food in the house? Now, there were days where cereal boxes were almost empty or whatnot, but, but they just didn't worry about it. You know why? Because that's not a kid's responsibility to worry about. Parents might worry about it, but little kids don't. And your heavenly father doesn't want you to worry about the necessities. Read to the end of the chapter because that's where he has made you 
Great promises. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to have the menu selection you would like to have every single day or even the closet full of clothes to pick from, but he does say, don't worry about what you will eat or drink or what you will put on. Seek the kingdom. It doesn't mean that just because there might actually be a season of suffering, and we know from the scriptures and all the way through church history, there have been many saints who have suffered great deprivation, lost everything that they owned, earthly speaking. Does it mean that God was unfaithful to his promises? No, it, it means that for a season he deemed it best that there not be the supply of physical bread on that day. But he is talking to us about the necessities of everyday life. And your father knows what you need. I've long loved the prayer included in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, and prayed this on many occasions. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. There's wisdom in that prayer. You can actually have so much that you stop thinking and believing you're dependent upon God, even though you are. It's also possible to be so impoverished that you say, Lord, where are you? But our Father says, pray to me. I'm the one who supplies. Number four, we pray for the mercy of God's forgiveness. You know, we are people who are continually in need of forgiveness, aren't we? That's why we pray, forgive us our debts. Our sin, even the smallest sin, creates a real and personal obligation to pay the debt. And the debt is exactly what Jesus is referring to when he teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. We're saying, Lord, would you release us of the moral debt or obligation we've incurred by our sin? How can God forgive any of us? Is it because you say, I'll never do that again? I'm really serious, Lord, this time. I'm gonna be obedient from this day forward. No, we know from passages like Ephesians 4.32 that tell us very simply that God, for Christ's sake, forgives us. Your obedience is not enough. My commitment is not enough. The promises that may be sincere in that moment because the true child of God hates her sin. The true child of God says, I don't ever wanna go back there again, but we're weak, we're not perfect yet. God forgives for Christ's sake. This beautiful symbol on the wall hanging behind, this, uh, behind that screen of the cross. The cross is the reason God forgives us. And you know, that's what gives way to the next phrase. As we also, and notice how Jesus says it, have forgiven our debtors. It's clear, isn't it, that forgiving others precedes our request for God's forgiveness of our sins. I wonder if there's anyone that you are presently withholding forgiveness from. We sometimes wander down really dark pathways and thinking and say, but they hurt me so deeply, and you're right. And they don't understand what they've really done, and they don't. But even as God, for Christ's sake, forgives you, can you extend that same forgiveness? Because God's not forgiving you and me because we understood our sin perfectly or because we know how deeply we grieved his soul He's forgiving us because we come in humility and faith and say, I have sinned, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And he says, yes, for Christ's sake. Well, there's a whole nother conversation we probably should have, and I don't want to be careless in this because some of you have actually suffered great sin from others. But when a person comes to you in genuine repentance and humility and says, will you forgive me? You can always look at them by faith 
and, and in a sense look past them to the cross and say, you know, for Christ's sake, I do. You don't have to preach a sermon to them at that point to say, do you know how much you really hurt me? Do you understand what you've done to our family? No, when a person humbles himself, and, and you know when they're genuine, says, would you forgive me? God has actually empowered you to do it for Christ's sake. You see, the whole point is that the Lord wants us operating in this culture and atmosphere of mercy. We know we need his mercy, and he wants us to be extending it one to another, eagerly, quickly. It, it keeps us healthy and whole as a church family. It keeps us healthy and whole in our marriages and with our children and children with their parents. We pray for the mercy of God's forgiveness to come to us and to flow out of us. And then number five, we pray for the power of God's deliverance. Look at verse 13. Lead us not into temptation. And the Lord, James tells us, the Lord never actually tempts us to sin. He's not the one. Uh, the adversary, the devil, and his horde are the actual sources of that. But there's more to it than just temptations to sin. There's, there's actually a view of being led into a trial that could could shipwreck your faith. That's the second part. Deliver us from the evil one would be the strongest translation, I believe, that we could make. Not just generic evil. Lord, don't let bad stuff happen to us. No, we're saying, Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Peter describes him as one who prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I think we're praying something very similar here to saying, keep us from the prowling one. Don't let them devour our faith. Some days our faith is really fragile and you feel like, I, I just don't know if I can persist in my faith. That's a moment to say, oh Lord, don't, don't let me be subject to a trial that would overthrow my faith. It's a father who delights to rescue from danger. So those are the things that we pray. 